My name is Liz Gray, and I'm the rector here, and I'm delighted to join with Amy's welcome to any of you who are visiting us tonight, and to all the regulars as well, welcome. It's always good to see family here gathering to worship. I don't know uh, if you, well, hopefully you've noticed, but we're in the middle of a series on Colossians. We're in week three at the moment, and um, we're making our way steadily through, and now we've reached the end of chapter one. Being a kind of DC crowd, I wonder how many of you have ever had to do anything cross-cultural. And I suspect all of you have at one point or another. You've had to deal with somebody from a different country, a different um, background in one way or another. And I've been reading this really interesting book. Actually, the, the, these are the books I'm reading at the moment. If you want to, anything about any of them, I'm really loving them all. But this one in particular, I had to read for a committee I'm part of. And it's called The Culture Map by Erin Mayer. And it's fascinating. She takes um, loads of cultures around the world, and she has eight criteria, and she maps them all against each other. And so she sort of says, this is what Australians often are like in these eight criteria. This is what you know, Germans are like. This is what the Brits are like. And, and then she kind of, um, if you go as an Australian to Germany, she says, well, you might want to pay attention to these of the eight criteria because you're over here and they're over there. And it's fascinating. I love it all. But one of the ones which you're probably most familiar with is um, this idea of time. And an anthropologist called Edward Hall did some work on this, and he came up with this categorization of people being P-time people, monochromatic time people, or polychromatic time people. And it's one of those kind of ones that's easier to get to grips with than some of the others, because essentially monochromatic time people tend to come from the really industrialized countries, the places with a sturdy rule of law, the places where life is kind of predictable. And so if you grew up in a, a culture where perhaps there's been a um, dependence on the automobile industry, you have to get to work on time because otherwise the whole factory kind of grinds to a halt. Whereas if you're a farmer, it doesn't matter so much the whole system coming to a halt. It doesn't matter if you get to work at 12 minutes past 7 or 14 minutes past 7. What matters is that you have good working relationships with your team because you might have to flex with um, a flood or a locust invasion. You need to have people with whom you have very strong relational connections. And so that's one of the ones where you can kind of go, okay, I tend to be a more M-time person or a more P-time person because it often just the ways that you have um, been formed by your, the culture around you. But as I was reading this book, I was, I was beginning to think, okay, as a Brit living in America, where do I fall? And, and, and sort of thinking, well, the Americans are over here, and the Brits are over here, where am I? And I kind of thought it would be quite fun to sort of, and you can apparently go on her website and, and work out where you lie on all of these things. But then I thought, what about incarnation? What about incarnation as a little microcosm of Arlington? If we plotted Arlington on the map and we plotted us on the map, where would be the places that we as a community would need to flex as we listen to our neighbors around here? Where are the places or the, the kind of styles of things where we would need to adapt? And it occurred to me that really I think this is what Paul is doing in the book of Colossians. And if you remember, a couple of weeks ago Phoebe came and she told us a little bit about what it was like being in Colossae at the time when the small church began to be formed. And some of the differences which were happening as she, as female slave, was coming to know what it was like being in a community of believers. And then last week, Paul then took it another step because he said, okay, you guys, you little community, 
You are the king's faithful family. You are God's holy people. So how are you going to get along? How are you going to form a community out of all this kind of hodgepodge of people who've been put together? And Paul said, okay. He was very smart. He said, you need to know Jesus. And so this beautiful poem that we concentrated on last week where Paul said, this is where you're going to find your central point, where all of you, and maybe we can think of ourselves as a kind of microcosm, a little like the Colossian church, all of you can be centered on this one truth, the truth of Christ. And that's where you're going to be able to start your culture formation from as you begin to shift on some of the other things. But one of the interesting things that Paul notes fairly early on in this book, is that once he'd said to them, okay, you guys, you need to pay attention to who Jesus is, he then quite often begins to use the word suffering. He talks about pain. He talks about taking in his own flesh, the now I rejoice in my sufferings for your sake, and in my flesh I am filling up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions for the sake of his body, that is the church. There's this idea that the gospel always brings pain with it. And there's a truth that when Jesus is on the cross, he said, it is finished. And it was finished. His work was complete at that point. But that didn't make for a pain-free church. It didn't make for a pain-free transition for pre-Jesus to post-Jesus. And I think what Paul is saying in here is acknowledging that there is pain. There is pain in this new phase of the God's people and one commentator I read this week said it was almost like he was saying that he was wanting to draw attention, draw enemy fire and say, here I am in prison. Enemy, look at me. Ignore the churches of Colossae and Laodicea as they getting formed. He was trying to kind of protect them spiritually. Because Paul knows that challenging the status quo is always going to be painful. And he recognizes that suffering is going to be a part of the transforming message of the cross. And even today, not so much here where things are still pretty safe and easy, but around the world, if you pay any attention at all, you can't miss the fact that Christians around the world are, are still engaged in a very painful conflict with so many other cultures that surround them. If you uh, call yourself an Anglican, which you might do sitting in this congregation this evening, or whether you don't, you might know that Anglicans have got bishops, and then the bishops have an archbishop. And our archbishop, Foley Beach, writes a letter to people who subscribe to it about once a month. And just before Christmas, he wrote, or just after Christmas, he wrote uh, a January letter. And it, it went something like this. I'm abbreviating it slightly, but... He talked about celebrating the birth of Jesus, the word becoming flesh, and how we were enjoying things. But then he went on to talk about a young Nigerian woman, Martha Bullis, and her 10 companions. And they were actually, just before Christmas, on the way to Martha's wedding in Nigeria. And they got hijacked and kidnapped and brutally murdered by the Boko Haram. There are places in this world where that happens with a brutal, brutal conflict between Christians and non-Christians continues. There's world's large-scale persecution. And it's hard for us here sometimes to even begin to get our minds about this because we kind of feel like living in America, we live in a so-called Christian culture and everything's 
just the way it should be. And, and, and okay, you're already smiling at me. It's not all the way it should be. And even within this Christian culture, there are such, so many divisions. When you look at both sides or all sides of any argument, you can see that the church is at odds even within itself. So what do we do about this fact that we're wanting to establish what a Christ-centered culture is all about? Well, I'm going to say a little bit more about that in a moment. But as Paul goes on, first of all, then he says, okay, acknowledge the fact that as you find this Christ culture, there are going to be points of pain between yourself and those around you. But then he makes this lovely reference to mystery. And he repeatedly talks about the mystery that was being kind of broken open at this point. And I think what he's saying there is that when Christ, God's relationship with his people from the days when he first called Abraham out of Ur, he's had a very special place in his heart for his people, the Jewish people, the Israelites. And that was a bit of a mystery to everybody else. What God was doing with them was kind of strange. And they were all outsiders, and they were the insiders and the outsiders. But through Christ, there's this extraordinary moment where that breaks open. And Paul is saying that God is revealing this mystery to everybody, to the whole world, to even creation, as we heard about it last week in the Christ poem. Creation itself acknowledging that something completely different was happening now. And so this God's culture, this, this breaking out of the mystery. And another way you might look at the word mystery is, is thinking about um, some of the mysteries which maybe involve something like the Masons, where there's an initiation ceremony, something where there's secrets and says there are secrets to get into this. And Paul is saying there are no secrets to get into the gospel. This is no longer something where you have to kind of perform rituals to, to understand what's going on. God's people are now, it's open, open book for them, open season. We can all know Christ. And so the resurrection sent a complete shockwave through the world. And in verse 27, to them God chose to make known how great among the Gentiles are the riches of the glory of this mystery, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. No longer is God out there, but he's in here. Christ has moved from being a person who the disciples could touch to being available to us, to being inside us. And then Paul went on and said, For I want you to know how great a struggle I have for you and for those at Laodicea, and who, for all who have not seen me face to face, that their hearts may be encouraged, being knit together in love, to reach all the riches of full assurance of understanding and the knowledge of God's mystery, which is Christ, in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge." God didn't leave it to this little new church to work it out for themselves. He said, I have given you everything you need in order to create this Christ culture. You all have access to understanding and knowledge of God's mystery, which is Christ. And Paul is willing to struggle for all these little ch churches who are wanting to achieve the secure footing and to marvel that we have access to Christ in us, the hope of glory, and that that is the truth of what roots us. So how, as in another book I've been reading, Howard Thurman would phrase it, do we live in the present with dignity and creativity? How do we make sure that when we listen to the plausible arguments 
which Paul talks about. We don't simply give in to them. And we start, I think, always humbly acknowledging how we as a church have not always got it right because we have forgotten at times that Christ is in us. And so as I was thinking this week about some of the ways that I've seen that people come out of the church or, or even stay within the church but, but be hurt by the church, I think of the harm caused by the ICAS dating goodbye kind of message. Some kernels of truth overwhelmed by messages of guilt and shame, leaving so many men and women confused and bruised. Think of the moral superiority which Christians can develop within their denominations. And Anglicans are no more immune to this than anybody else. But the temptation, we begin to say, oh, we do it the right way. No, we do it a way. We do things a way. One of the things that has been such fun about our Celtic small group on Wednesday nights is we've been looking at the way the Celts did evangelism, another one of the books I'm reading. Um, I do get a little confused with all these books, but anyway. And one of the points which was made on Wednesday night was how uh, when the Celts were doing evangelism, they didn't get too bogged down if um, people were coming into the church and still occasionally praying about the fairies, because that was part of the kind of background that these people were coming in from. But what they did do was always preach Christ. What they did do is always say, well, okay, we'll get to those in a bit, but let's talk about Jesus. Let's concentrate on what is true. And they didn't find themselves wanting to crush people in their understanding, but to say, let's find the bits which, are, which we can agree on, which we can f feed and flourish, see flourish. It would have been so easy for the early Christians to have got very defensive and anxious and fearful about the message they were presenting. And then personally, as the grandchildren, grandchild and grand, great-grandchild of many missionaries, I have to think always of the ways that the missionaries have exported not only the gospel, but also cultural messages of all sorts around the world. And I feel like periodically in my life, I've had to spend some time apologizing, repenting, praying through some of those choices made by my adventuring ancestors as they took the gospel from Sweden to Africa often getting things right, but also so often, sadly, getting things wrong. Jesus and the Disinherited, a simply phenomenal book. Uh, Thomas, Howard Thurman notes, it is the sin of pride and arrogance that has tended to vitiate the missionary impulse and to make of it an instrument of self-righteousness on the one hand and racial superiority on the other. Self-righteousness, fear, racial superiority, spiritual pride, arrogance, always wanting to be in control. How quickly we can slip into these potholes as we engage with culture. So I think the first challenge to us is to remember that we often get it wrong. And then to come with humility and remember what we do have. We have Christ in us, the hope of glory. So how do we check these impulses of self-righteous superiority as we engage with culture, as we listen to the plausible arguments that we're surrounded with on a day-by-day -day basis? Three suggestions. First of all, we remember that we are embodied witnesses to Jesus. Think about that. You are an embodied witness to Jesus. You're the closest somebody's going to get to touching Jesus. When you engage with people at work and in the street, you are an embodied witness. 
What difference does that make to the ways that you engage with people around you? Christ in you, the hope of glory. We welcome. Again, in the Celtic way of evangelism, it's been fun reading about how people set up, the, 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 the Celts set up their monasteries. And one of their key features was to make sure that they were welcoming, that there was a wide gate in for people to come, and that the guest house was kind of the best place in the area, and that they wanted people to come and to be welcomed, to belong before they believed, to know that there was a place there for them. And so with some of the, one of the things that we've tried to weave into our life here at Incarnation, the concept of common tables. And as we come to Shrove Tuesday, we're going to encourage you again to think, okay, what could you have a common table on Shrove Tuesday? It's a great opportunity to say to your neighbors, come and eat pancakes with us. And maybe they'll open up the conversation, or maybe they won't. But maybe they'll say, why Shrove Tuesday? Why pancakes? Why Lent? Why Easter? You never know. They might. They might not. But at least if they know that they're welcome in your home and that you're a safe person to engage with, at least they know that they can come and find sucker and warmth in your home. What a great thing that would be. So think about it. It's a couple of weeks away still, so you've got time to think and plan and perfect your pancake recipe. I'm willing to be a guinea pig for that if you need help. And then thirdly, we have to pray for people. We have to pray for our bosses, for our colleagues, for our families, for everybody who really, really irritates us. Because we have to bring them in our imaginations before the throne of God. We have to literally take them in our minds and set them there. And then begin to pray for them, to begin to ask for God's best for them, to begin to ask for God's blessing upon them. Because as you see them in that position, your heart will change. Your heart will begin to change as you see them there. Because if you ask God to give them a glimpse, you a glimpse of how he sees them, It'll be different. It'll be different, I can assure you, to the way that you see them. So take time to pray for people and ask God to soften your heart, to show us. And also, it's kind of reassuring to remember that he will deal with their sin. So you don't have to just kind of forget about that. You can leave that to God to deal with. He's going to do it far more effectively than we will. So praying begins to lead us to love. Christ in us, the hope of glory. Fundamentally, it seems like an almost mundane message, but we have to love people before we know the facts, before we hear the details, before we can be proved right or wrong. We have to look at each other in our humanness and then delight in the fact that we have Christ in us, the hope of glory. So for us as a community, as we begin to think about what it is that defines incarnation culture, I pray that we can be very humble we can be very humble and, and try to be as slow as possible to decide that we've learned how to do things the right way. But just to be flexible so that when we welcome people in, we can say, come, come in, come and join us. Come without us being arrogant or proud. Just come and experience what it is to be loved by your heavenly Father and to know what it is to have Christ in you, the hope of glory. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, will you help us to pay attention to our hearts? Will you help us to not respond to our neighbors with fear, but with welcome? Not with self-righteousness, but a willingness to share our love of you. Not with judgment, but with delight that you are greater and creator of all things. 
Will you help us to be mindful of those we influence, our bosses, our peers, our friends and family. May we always draw them to you and Christ in us, the hope of glory. Help us to love in that hope with a keen determination and a longing to experience more of your life in us and to form a community where the culture is based on Christ at the heart, Christ at the center, Christ all around us. Amen.